0: Hey, what's up, everybody? Thanks for joining us on Desmadre Madre podcast number 10 featuring Betty Garcia. She is a longtime friend of mine, amazing person who's a labor union organizer working on some really important stuff here on the West Coast. Before we get started, however, a little bit of housekeeping. If you can, please remember to leave a five-star review on iTunes or Stitcher and a couple of comments. I love this web, you know, blah, 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 blah. What the fuck are we doing, podcast? I love this podcast because blah, 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 blah. Um, tell all your friends about it. Please, please, please share this link to people on YouTube or Facebook, wherever your social media home of choice is. And if you like what we're doing, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Desmadre. Chip in a dollar, whatever you can. It all really goes a long way to help keep this beautiful, amazing studio going. Let's get going, guys. Podcast number 10 with Betty Garcia starts now. All right. Can I just get going? Yeah. Fuck it. All right. Podcast. This... That was, that was whack. <laughs> <laughs> that was whack as fuck. I thought he even hug over. <laughs> this Bothered podcast number 10 is now beginning, and there's an airplane flying over us in this shitty garage. This week we have an amazing guest, Betty Garcia, who is a longtime friend. Man, we've known each other for 20 years. 20
1: years. <laughs> yeah. 20 fucking
0: years. We're uh, still young.
1: We're still young. We're still young. <laughs> you
0: mean sexy. Meet <laughs> Um, We've known each other for 20 years. Uh, We both went to Stanford and um, we've been running around the Beener circle, if you will. Yes. The people of color Stanford circle from our generation. Um, Yeah. (laughs) That's probably a good way to put it. The natives. Yes, the
1: the natives and the, well, yeah, the people of color from Stanford. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, But Betty is here. Uh, I really wanted to get her on the show because she is. Uh, are you? What is your official title, or what are you?
1: I am lead organizer of the security officer campaign in San Diego. Okay. Uh, but I'm part of a statewide union called United Service Workers West. We're part of the uh, Service uh, Employees International Union. Okay. And we represent um, janitors and security officers. And right now we're. We're participating in the local Silicon Valley campaign to organize security
0: officers. Got it. So you're technically like uh, an organizer. Yes. A union labor organizer. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll take a step back, Um, even before our 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) Where'd you grow up, Betty?
1: I grew up in Oxnard, man. Oxnacuaro de las fresas.
0: Nice.
1: (laughs) Um, small farm worker community much bigger now but I grew up there with my family all eight children my parents and
0: wow. ex- where are your parents me. from um,
1: originally from Guanajuato Mexico
0: okay yeah. and how did they end up in Oxnard
1: my dad got there um, to work he came in the mid-60s um, looking for work to be able to help his family back in Mexico and he, he liked Oxnard you know the weather and there was work year-round
0: yeah. yeah, Yeah. so you didn't have to travel. He he, he was never like a, a migrant, like uh, like traveling or did he? Yeah,
1: he did. He, he used to do the travel, the runs from Imperial, like so Southern California, like the border region, all the way up to Washington state. Wow. Um, but eventually he decided, you know what, it's too cold where I go. So like, let me find a happy yeah. medium. And um, there was people from his hometown there and there was work year round more than anything. He could yeah. actually, instead of like having to move with the crop, He could actually move with the crop but in one place so like you know there was celery and then there was orange and then there was lemons and yeah
0: yeah so So he did he work for one grower for the majority of his
1: yeah he worked um uh well he worked originally um there was several different farms Mm -hmm. but it's one grower okay um and he was mostly um harvesting celery Hmm. Um, But eventually, my dad actually never went to school. He, you know, educated himself on how to read and write. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was taking English classes in the 70s. And from his English classes, his teacher actually said, you know what, you're pretty smart. You should, you know, go into vocational training. And he did. He became a welder. Mm -hmm. And then he still worked in the farms doing machine shop work. So fixing Uh, tractors and things like that. Okay,
0: so So he was in the shop. mm -hmm. Nice. I didn't know your dad was a machinist. Yeah. That's cool. What about your mom?
1: My mom, um, she actually worked in the packing houses. So she actually never worked harvesting. Yeah. She worked on the next, like, you know, line. Um, So packing strawberries, packing chile, um, packing squid and fish. Because where we're from is, like, right on the ocean. We have a deep sea port. Yeah. So... Yeah, she was doing all of that and eventually became a child care provider um, because my dad got sick. He ended up getting having a stroke when he was really young. He was 40. Really? Yeah, he was 40. He had a stroke, and I think that's when my mom was like, we can't do it. If something were to happen to your dad, we can't do it by yeah. ourselves because we're eight kids. Wow. Um, so she became a child care provider.
0: Wow. Yeah. She had eight You have seven siblings. Yes. Where are you on that list? I'm number five. (laughs) Number five, so you're right in the middle. Yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah, I have four older brothers and then a younger sister and two younger brothers.
0: That is a huge family. Yeah. Wow. Is everybody still like in, are they all over the place now or just Um, mostly?
1: I mean, like I'm in San Diego, but I have a brother who, I have two other brothers who are in San Diego County. Um, I have a brother in LA, my brother and my sister in Oxnard, and then I have... Another brother that lives in Mexico City.
0: Wow. Yeah. Wow. So how does somebody like you end up at Stanford? Like what was your high school experience like or your middle school experience? Like did you did you ever think you were going to go to college or was there somebody who made a difference back then or?
1: Yeah, I actually, I have an older brother. Um, both of my, well, all of us are college educated, but my oldest. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. My oldest, yeah. oldest brother, Rafael, he... Um He went to Cal State Northridge and is an engineer, um, and he works down in he's in San Diego. But my second oldest brother, Roberto, um, unknowingly, like someone said, "Hey, apply to Stanford." And he went to Stanford. He really was, yeah, he was the first one to go to Stanford.
0: How much older did he-, he
1: is um, eight eight years older than Okay, I, yeah, okay. Yeah, so he's Uh. like two generations or, you know. Yeah, two classes. (laughs) Yeah, two classes before, two, three classes before us. Yeah. Um, And then, um, well, you know, it was just, what I discovered, I'm the the oldest daughter in my family. What I discovered around when I was 10 years old is like, I'm either going to take care of kids because I was, you know, my parents were really busy, so it was my job to take care of the younger kids and my older brothers that... You know had a limited responsibility at home (laughs) (laughs) so i decided i was like oh hells no i'm not going to do this for the rest of my life so um what i discovered in junior high was that i could stay out of my house if i was good in school so i got super (laughs) involved in school i was like straight a student like you know part of student government like doing everything i could yeah to be out of the house, and that they gave me permission to. Like, yeah, they yeah. didn't give me permission to go hang out with friends or anything, Yeah, yeah. but I would hang out with folks at school. Right, So that's um, pretty smart. Yeah. yeah, hey man, whatever it takes. Yeah. I was yeah. trying to get out of there as soon as possible. <laughs> so and and in high school i participated in a youth leadership program for latino youth called future leaders of america mm-hmm. um and i got to travel um to russia to do a youth leadership exchange oh wow mexico to do youth leadership camps over there um washington dc like all kinds all over the united states through that program wow and because it was school related my parents were like okay you can go yeah yeah so nice. that's how i ended up going to stanford yeah um that was, I had visited my other brothers at their campuses, but when I came to Stanford, it was just, like, You're like hey, awesome. Yes. Yeah, yeah. it was, <laughs> like, I met Francis, like, yeah. when I was, like, 12 years old, you really? know? Really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> you know, like, wow. I, I remember when we came to visit my brother, like, meeting Francis and going to Centro Chicano and to um,
0: Zapata. Casa Zapata and yeah. just
1: being on the campus, yeah. and I thought, like, this is where I want to be.
0: Wow. Yeah. So from 12 years old, you knew about it. Wow. Oh
1: yeah. Oh yeah. You know, I think about one of the happiest experiences in my life and it was receiving my like package from Stanford when I got my acceptance. Remember that folder? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like opening it and I like literally jumped and I cried. Like, I, I, you know, I still feel the knot in my throat because I was like, yes, yes. (laughs) That was 20 years ago, guys. Over 20 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah that's crazy yeah that is
0: pretty crazy yeah Oh man so your uh, your brother was there then during all of like the jose antonio Bustiaga. Uh, yes uh, he was there
1: with uh, antonio Bustiaga. um lived in zapata was part of the folklorico wow. was there during the hunger strike like all of that
0: wow yeah wow that's pretty cool that is pretty cool that i, I when i got i didn't know anything about stanford mm-hmm. I heard about it because I was in this math and science program, and actually they weren't even pushing it because it was a it was an East Coast, Coast. program. Mm-hmm. And um, do you know Ine, Ine Begay?
1: Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: So she was part of that summer program. I knew Ine um, in high school because we were spending our summers in Massachusetts at this mm-hmm. math and science program. And you know she's from Kayenta. she's yeah. from Arizona, but I had I met Ine out there. And she was like, "Yeah, I'm applying to this place, Stanford, and whatever." And I was like, "Oh, that's cool. You're hot." <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's a whole other story. We're not gonna get into that. Uh, but Ine told me about Stanford, and uh, and we were really good friends. And I was like, "This looks like a really cool place." You know, I mm-hmm. see the brochure or whatever. Um, and I didn't visit until I got accepted, and you know, they paid for the
1: the admit weekend. The Admit
0: weekend, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I came out to admit weekend. And yeah, it took about two hours for me to be like, "Yeah, this is it." Like, I called my mom. I actually called my mom from a payphone outside of Zapata, and I was <laughs> oh, like, "I
1: remember that payphone." <laughs> yeah,
0: I was like, "I'm coming here. This is it." I, it was a wrap, you know. Um, I had, I think I had maybe maybe by the time I had heard of it, um, you know, Juan Aguayo. Mm-hmm. So he's from my neighborhood. Yeah. So he was already here. I guess he was a sophomore. And so that was cool because I got to stay with him. Mm-hmm. Although I, it was funny, man, I was such a fucking nerd. Like,
1: <laughs> yeah, you weren't the only one, brother.
0: <laughs> I like. I was like. Uh, I remember like I stayed with him, and uh, I forget if his ro- roommate was Tony B or one of the other guys. It
1: may have been Tony B. Maybe
0: Tony B. Uh, I know they all lived there, but uh, I was crashing with Juana, Juana and. Uh, they were partying like crazy that weekend and I was all, like all up in the room like reading like I was like
1: He's like oh let me find out more about Stanford. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was so stupid I should have just been down there getting drunk with them man. <laughs> it was like all noisy I mean I was like man this is crazy you know but yeah. um, definitely a different uh, perspective and it mm-hmm. took took me a few years to get into the social group <laughs> I would say but no, when I got there, I was just like, "Man, this is crazy!" And I think that weekend they had the Floricanto.
1: Yes, with Antonio, Jose Antonio Burciano. Yeah, yeah.
0: And uh, and so they were having and the Floricanto. How would you describe the Floricanto? It's like a. It's
1: like a, you know, spoken word poetry cultural night. Yeah, really.
0: yeah, it's like a cultural night. They have, I think, like they they usually have music and they have the zoot suit dance or whatever. Yes. Yeah. Uh, They used to have uh, Dr. Locos play all the time. Yeah, Rock
1: and Jalapeno Band. The Rock
0: and Jalapeno Band. And so they had this night that was just like amazing. I was like, damn, this is crazy. Like this is, you know, and my other, I was like thinking of going to Brown or Williams and (laughs) stuff. It was just like, (laughs) yeah, um,
1: Yeah, complete (laughs) opposite. Yeah,
0: very, very different. (laughs) So it made it easy. What did you major in?
1: I majored in political science and comparative studies in race and ethnicity. So how? it was the second the second year that we could graduate with that.
0: The CSRE. CSRE. Yeah. What is that what is that major like, or what, how would you describe that major? You know
1: what? Um for me I think the major I you know I chose to do CSRE as opposed to just Chicano studies yeah. um because you know I ha- one thing that I've discovered as I've grown older is like I have a curiosity about people and about people's experiences in the places where they're from. And I think for me, CSRE was a really healing process, hmm. um, you know, to, to discover, you know, like that the life that I had before I went to Stanford, like really mattered. Hmm. Um, so, it, it, and, and that there's a lot of other communities that may feel the same way, sure. but that they matter. And we have to recognize their contribution, their effort, their dedication, and that they're part of the American fabric, um, so it, I thought it was really awesome, like being able to do like community learning, uh, community service learning in East Palo Alto. Spent some time there mm-hmm. uh, doing projects through through both political science and ethnic studies. Um, you know, I, for me, like that combination, I always thought I was going to work in government and mm-hmm. you know do the political game, and. Uh, You know, it created the opportunity for me to go to D.C. and work on Capitol Hill, and it wasn't for me. I realized, like, once I came (laughs) back to school, it was like, you know what? I love to learn about that, Yeah. but I actually think that my role in the world is to connect the communities that I'm studying and reading about and being part of to that process. Yeah, Yeah, Um, that's a
0: shark's game. I mean, it's pretty filthy, as we all know. It definitely is. Even if you're on the good side, if you will. I think you have to be willing to get in the dirt in ways that you know are sometimes uncomfortable. That's some of the stuff Erica is finding. Is like you know my sister being mm-hmm. on the board. It's like oh yeah, it's tough. <laughs>
1: yeah, you know what? I admire your sister so much because <laughs> I met her when I was living in Hawaii yeah. doing organizing out there, mm-hmm. um, and it was right when she was deciding to run.
0: Oh, was it right around yeah, that time? Yeah, it was really? right
1: around that time. I think okay. she was, like, right before, mm-hmm. like, a couple of months later or, like, a year later, she she announced that she was running. And yeah. I was like, oh, my God, like, God bless you. Because she ran at the state level, lo- like, yeah. for a state-level position. Right. So I was just like, whoa, and in Texas.
0: Yeah. And, and if you know her, you know, like, that's not naturally in her, like, you know, her core. Like, it's not, like, she's not, like, a political beast. And she's not, like out for power of any sort you know it is pretty much she's just a, an expert and really cares about you know what she's into but yeah it's a really tough thing to be in politics oh yeah anyway
1: yeah cutthroat, like yeah. dirty and yeah I mean you gotta negotiate with things that are sometimes outside of your value system to to win for the people that you care about
0: yeah yeah.
1: It's, yeah. So that's why I admire her so much. I like I follow her on Facebook. So I'm like, oh, yeah, you go, girl. <laughs> I'm a fan. I think I'm a fan. <laughs> uh, going
0: back to the CSRE stuff, mm-hmm. there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of pushback to that sort of major in study and study. And right now I feel like especially with I well, can't avoid getting into the whole Trump culture thing mm-hmm. or whatever. But um, you know the almost like a mockery of that sort of stuff and like oh the safe spaces and the liberal kind of brainwashing of students on you know uh, liberal arts colleges and stuff like how do you feel about that like cuz i in part of me n- not specifically with the csre stuff or the ethnic studies but certainly like the um, the somewhat there could be, uh, let's just call it the safe-spacization <laughs> for lack mm-hmm. of a better way of putting it. Um, creating a place where a certain sort of speech is like really prohibited and like there's kind of a group think with regards to like um, the liberal left or whatever, which I'm totally a part of, but mm-hmm. um, I, I can see how it can be constricting to growth in some ways, mm-hmm. like on certain campuses. and and um, like. I just like if you're only surrounded by people like you, it can be really difficult to go into the real world and, you know, effect change because you maybe don't have empathy for the other side, which is a lot of the argument that's happening right now for why people went and voted for for Trump. Um, have you thought about that much or, you know?
1: Um, well, you know, I... I... Well, number one, I have to say I'm disappointed with the results of our presidential election. <laughs> um, I, I do. Th- I have been thinking a lot about it for like the past. I mean, well, it's been my career. Like I've spent my career um, working on creating these safe spaces for communities to participate in the democratic process. Okay. And, yeah. you know, and I mean, we we live in what we call a democracy that doesn't always include everyone who's part of this, country so you know like I think about it and I mean if you only stay within the group and the group think then Mm -hmm. yes of course that can be dangerous in and of itself but I think what those the role of of study programs like that is to create a foundation um, where young people or students can can really develop into like critical thinkers, um, you know, and have a critical understanding of number one who they are, like the un- the understanding of their history, of their culture, and of how our communities of color interact in a larger world sure. um, where there is a different perspective of how this country should move forward. Sure. And I think we yeah. see we saw the results. And like the huge gap that exists between these communities in the results of the presidential election, um, uh, and I think you know we—I well, mean—we have to be critical about. I mean, I think we've done great work on the ground in communities of color. I think programs like CSRE are really important in creating those safe spaces. But I think we also have to recognize that we've been doing a lot of on-the-ground work in communities of color. But I think where it's been really missing, and I'm not saying that we have to create safe spaces for white people. I think they already exist. <laughs> um, obviously, yeah. the Midwest that voted, that very much yeah. went, you know, right. Um, you know, like is a safe space for that kind of groupthink, um, and it isn't being challenged in a yeah. way that has them really understand how we're all in this together whether we like it or not and I I don't think that there's that kind of a critical discussion uh in in white communities about the the inextricable link that we have between working-class communities of color and working-class white communities and I think there's that gap that's been left out of a conversation particularly in working-class white communities in the middle of the country and I think you know like I think Ethnic and racial studies is a way for us to really be critical about what's happening in our communities, but also challenge us as students, as people of color, as scholars, to think about how we connect to these other communities. Um, I haven't been well, steeped in those yeah, yeah, conversations. It, yeah. but
0: it just it seems like there's an argument to be made that people who are critical of those things, like if, if I'm going to play devil's advocate to what you mm-hmm. just said, somebody might say, okay, well, it sounds to me like the ethnic studies part isn't really what matters. What matters is the socioeconomic, you know, study, if you will. And that's what links, you know, basically working class people, regardless of their color Mm -hmm. and regardless of their status or whatever. Like, I mean, that's been the beef or part of the the story anyway with uh, people who did vote in that direction is that, you know, they felt ignored Mm -hmm. They're working class. Um, They feel like the focus has been too much on racial issues, whereas they're like, well, I'm suffering from the same shit. Nobody cares about me because I'm white, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So I think that's part of the blowback. But I think what ends up happening is that, like, I mean, this is like, I think this is the first, not the first, but this election and this election cycle has been one of the first where it's been blatantly like a media propaganda game where you take a certain phrase or a certain thing and spin it and then it becomes like, like the word safe spaces is now kind of a dirty word. Mm-hmm. Like if you read Breitbart or you watch Fox News, it's it's used to mock people now. Yeah. Right. I'll mm-hmm. go to your fucking safe space or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, so there's just so many like, uh, they're, they're, people have taken like things, thrown them against each other. It's everything, everything is ammo and I don't know how you reset (laughs) or, you know.
1: Well, I mean, I think going back to your initial point is, yes, we need to talk about our socioeconomic connection to each other. I mean, and I think, you know, like it's a tough time in the labor movement, but it's also a ripe opportunity to really have those discussions at a national level and then at the local level. Uh, about how we begin to have that conversation with our brothers and sisters who feel left out of a much larger conversation. And I think in terms of media, I think what the media did, and they did it incredibly well, is that they divided us like completely. And they were able to play on these fears of not being included, of being an outsider, of being forgotten. Yeah. That really, like elevated people's like anger enough to vote for something that is completely against, or for someone who is completely against their interests yeah you know like yeah. and and i mean i think you know we have to look at at also the system that created people who aren't necessarily thinking and understanding critically what is happening to them and the connection to
0: other people <laughs> All right, we're back. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's it certainly seems like this we're walking into a great opportunity in many ways, sad as that may be, and and you know a lot of people, including some people who voted Trump but didn't like him or who you know voted third party or whatever, mm-hmm. um, just said, well, you know what, I'm okay with throwing. You know, a grenade into the room to see what happens. Yeah, yeah. This is kind of a reset in many ways, and and maybe that's what ends up happening, right? Is that like stuff gets so bad for a few years that you know the uh, the people kind of effectively unite in a, in a more cohesive way. Um, because yeah, at the end of the day, it is a socio economic thing, and and there are extremely rich people funding a lot of you know this stuff and it's like the the cook brothers and um i was reading an article about um there's this thing in the 40s and 50s i guess it was in the 50s frankfurt school there's a group of like um writers and philosophers uh critical theory and they they all immigrated from from germany you know basically fleeing um
1: Persecution,
0: I think persecution, <laughs> fleeing—you know, uh, Hitler basically um, and, and Nazism—and and they came up with this big theory of how this could happen again. And <clears throat> a couple of them um, in the mid-late fifties, once the whole McCarthy thing was going down, they were like, "Look, it's happening again." And they, were, they actually fled the U.S. They're like, mm-hmm. we're not going to stick around for this shit either. Mm-hmm. And so they took off. And they ended up being kind of technically off on that because it all fell apart, obviously, and things got normal for a while in <laughs> the Civil Rights Movement. Um, but if you go back and read a lot of the Frankfurt School theory, it, it explains very much to a T like, the kind of uh, conditions that have to exist for Uh, Trump to rise Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's not according to these guys you know it's very uh, the the signs were there and and a lot of it has to do with media and kind of things becoming a show people becoming so blinded by the reality nature of (laughs) the spectacle Um, and yeah I mean right now like even I think just a few weeks I don't know how long ago it was but you know like this executive of uh, CEO of CNN was like Well, the next four years are going to be interesting, meaning like ratings are going to be good. Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) so it makes for better TV, for better or worse.
1: Yeah, well, for more profit.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, All right, we just dove into a black hole (laughs) of of, of ethnic studies and safe spaces. Um, So after Stanford, what did you do after Stanford? After
1: Stanford, I actually um, began doing community organizing. Um, I... I worked for a legal aid for a while. Then I did youth leadership development um, with the organization that I was a member of during high school. Mm-hmm. Um, then I moved to San Diego and did some resident leadership development and affordable housing complex, particularly around the issues of um, like neighborhood blight, um, infrastructure investment, and affordable housing. <laughs> and um, Yeah, I've kind of been uh, in that world of community organizing for the past uh, 16 years or so. Um, Did that work back in Ventura County as well, like civic engagement. I've been doing a lot of civic engagement, connecting people to the democratic process, participating in, like once we elect people that are supportive, like how we get them to actually do the right thing and hold them accountable. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then uh, I did some work in Hawaii with... uh, with uh, immigrants on the island of Maui, which was an amazing experience. And what were
0: you, what exactly was that?
1: Um, well, I uh, was doing faith-based organizing. So I was organizing churches uh, oh. to develop basically social justice uh, ministries hmm. uh, that then were engaged in um, the political process. So um, basically the, the main question there is like, how do we make our values that we talk about on Sundays and at Bible study real in the world? through like the political process, because really the political process like enters into our life every moment of every day, those decisions that are being made. And sometimes they're not connected to the values that hold family and like, yeah, mostly family and opportunity and hope um, in, you know, like where we live in our everyday life decisions that these politicians are making. So we were doing a lot of that work and, and there, you know, Hawaii is a, it's absolutely gorgeous, uh, but I describe it sort of like an onion. It's like absolutely gorgeous on the top. Like you peel off the first layer. It's like, whoa, Then you peel off more and you discover that, you know, like there's such tragedy hidden hmm. in that on those islands Yeah. Uh, in terms of the history of the colonization, imperialism, and even now, like locals and natives, particularly native Hawaiians, can't afford to live on their land. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know so like it, it when i was there i was helping i was working with particularly latino immigrants but also pacific islanders micronesians um and the, the local natives um yeah. trying to fight for i mean number one like recognition that they matter in that in their community on their yeah. islands but also for like the opportunity to survive and thrive yeah because it's so difficult
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, the that's a whole other bucket. uh, Mm -hmm. There's a whole other podcast talking about Native rights and and getting into like what's happening at Standing Rock. Oh, yeah. And and those issues like it's pretty crazy. I mean, I have you heard of this book called Sapiens? Mm hmm. You should read it. You might not like it, but <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Uh,
1: I'm down to get challenged. <laughs> yeah, no,
0: it's, not, it's not, yeah. You might like it. I, I actually liked it, but it's it's kind of like a very brief history of like uh, just this, of, of of Homo sapiens, and, and, and it tracks kind of like the progress of mankind, like after he evolved from or he or she evolved from you know basically from a Neanderthal until now, and it breaks things down in a very cold, calculating way. In a way that's typically like either about biological survival Mm -hmm. or capitalism, you know, basically profit over everything, and and it it really is eye opening in many ways in that like the way it talks about um, you know um, colonialism or European intrusion into these native societies, whether it's like Australia or here, it's like you read it and you're just like, well. That's fucked up, but they came in and just fucking handled shit. Like, you know, like it's hard to, it's, it's just like, okay, that's like one form of organism and, and they're both the same, they're all both mm-hmm. sapiens or whatever, but they came in, they wanted something and they took it. Yeah. And it can be, you know, it can be compared to some sort of biological process in some way. Cause you're like, okay, this is like a virus or this is like one animal taking over another. Mm-hmm. And when you when you're in the middle of reading it, you're like, I don't like this, but I get it. Mm-hmm. I can see how this happened very clearly. And, and and you know, I think a lot of people make the argument, well, the more powerful group won, and that's just what happens, <laughs> right?
1: Yes. <laughs> that, well, I mean, I, I think, like, the way that you describe it is really what, like, community organizing and labor organizing is. Um, and as we look at political processes, like we think about the right that just won this election and it took them years of organizing like totally stealth right like organizing themselves around certain messages yeah in order to create the country or create the election that they wanted Yeah. yeah the atmosphere and the power enough to get what they want so they have a certain set of beliefs and understandings about what they want they deserve and the country they want to see and they organize themselves in such a powerful way that they could win despite like the delusional messaging that yeah. was out there right yeah. Yeah. um and i think that that like i mean we have to learn from like I, now i want to read the book it's like you, oh you my totally goodness like it. this really is good. the work that we that i yeah. do as an organizer yeah. it was like our work is to connect people to understand their interests and then work together build enough power by working together mm. to live those values out in the world. Sure. Um, you know, and it, it's basically being part of that homo sapien effort to, yeah. you know, live out the values in like what you believe and what you yeah. want and you know, I I don't know exactly at what point and I'm interested if the in case the book covers it is like, where did we move from this very like, you know, when we think of communities of color, like nurture, like, you know, our values are nurturing family, mm-hmm. like, creating opportunities, things like that, that we truly care about, and when in the world, like when in the history of Samians did we change to profit capitalism, and, you know? like I, I would
0: say that a lot of that had to do with the um, the agricultural revolution, and that's yeah. when, basically when, when we moved from being hunter-gatherers and living in groups, at the maximum groups of people used to be in the hundreds, mm-hmm. because uh, uh, any more than that, you can't, uh, you can't live kind of a nomadic hunter-gatherer lifestyle, yeah. um, but as soon as they discovered, you know, wheat and how to process it effectively, and how to store it effectively, and how to basically not have to move around, then communities grew larger, and then you had to have more of a social structure where you just had workers, yes. and you just had the, the you had the serfs, and you had the, you know the owners, the lords, and whatever. Um, I think that's about, which is, a you know, a long time ago for humankind, but, um, actually not that long ago with, with regards to the evolution of, 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 a species or earth. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I think that's, that's basically kind of when it starts happening is once you are able to start stockpiling mm-hmm. and you have a claim to, to land, yeah. um, that's when the shift starts, you know, becoming more about possession, um. And and yeah, it's crazy. The other cool thing about the book is that it really stresses how insignificant uh, our 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 human history is oh, yeah. in in the in the scale of like the earth. You know, it's like it's it's like this, and like human. You know, we have this infinitesimal, like, tiny slice of of, of, of uh, history, of yeah. history. And, and you're like, they have like a graphic at the beginning of the novel where they really try to illustrate it, and they obviously they they talk about it, but you're just like, man, we don't mean shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, Def- yeah. But it sounds like you're saying that, like, it's kind of uh, like with organizing, and these are all kind of in essence, kind of power plays mm-hmm. and 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 uh, power trying to balance itself. And I guess, like, the... the where I get stuck or where, I, where it gets frustrating for me is, like, how do you get to a point where... Or is it possible to get to a point where it's not just about power, right? Or where it's about, like, people becoming more you know united for some common goal like or is it just in the nature of us now i'm getting all fucking religious and shit but (laughs) (laughs) it is sunday morning people hey man
1: church
0: it's sunday morning right here the the church of this Monday right here motherfuckers Uh, (laughs) um, like is it always gonna be like that somebody wants more right? Because that's kind of seemingly what like a lot of the power that's happening right now is about like people like the Koch brothers and whatever like, pe- like go back to them because they're easy
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, but somebody believing that either a like they want to have the power and, and the money that comes with that or whatever or honestly a lot of it too is if you look outside of the scope of the US then there's a lot of religious um, strife and, and people will kill each other because they believe their God is the God hmm right um, I don't know where the fuck I'm going with this <laughs>
1: yeah I mean I think I mean I think it's possible but I think we need to have people clarify like really what they want I mean I think they want to succeed for themselves but we have to create an understanding that we're connected whether you get more I get less like we're still connected the fact that you get more means that someone else gets less yeah so how do we create an understanding and really like have people be clear about their own interest that if you succeed I succeed as well I mean you know like I think and when we think about power I mean we have a very particular way of looking at power I mean you just shared it like someone will always have more to oppress someone else and I think power if we look at the definition in a dictionary simply means the ability to act. And so we as organizers like that we're very clear on that like we want to build the power to act out and make real in the world our values. And I know it sounds really churchy like real religious but really it's like you
0: know But what if you, I mean the challenge I think is that people's values differ. Oh, and they completely. they they mm-hmm. differ diametrically Leah like you said mm-hmm. like you know you have people who want to you know imprison you know gay people you have you know people who want to <laughs> like who want to walk around like naked and be gay yeah. and, or do whatever the mm. hell they want you know yeah. and so those that's yeah. the challenge especially it, i think in a place like the us oh yeah where the diversity is is as severe as that
1: mm-hmm. but i think there's actually something that does bring us together like there are certain things that i mean i can't say a hundred percent of people believe you know, like in one thing, but I mean, I'd say that a majority of people do believe in the American dream, which was like, you know, the, like the pursuit of happiness, the opportunity to succeed, um, you know, to like own your own piece of property and, you know, like things like that, Mm -hmm. that I think a lot of people agree on, whether you are an immigrant, um, you know, like, or you have you know 15 generations here or you're Native American like maybe you don't believe in owning property but you do believe in the opportunity to live out your values um, and your culture in a way that isn't interrupted by someone else's idea of what your culture should be you know like and I think if we can get clear on what those few things it may be something as little as uh, you know like everyone should have the opportunity to get educated a quality education that's a huge actually issue <laughs> because how do you measure quality education mm-hmm. um but how do we work on that so that our education is quality for everyone and everyone you know has the opportunity to learn in a way that th- creates opportunity for them to be successful long term you know like yeah.
0: it's it sounds to me like one of the things you keep coming back to is that as part of this process people have to define their values and what is important to them mm-hmm. and that's the first step yeah and then yeah you figure out how to I, I don't know, act on that mm-hmm. um is there specifically within the organizing work you're doing now um actually yeah how do you how do you go about like learning like to be an organizer or like how do you is there like you know uh
1: organizer school Yeah, is there, where's, where's the secret
0: organizer school <laughs> where did obama go like,
1: <laughs> well um well i mean just before i, I answer that question yeah. i think um i mean the only way we can do it is if we talk to each other and and i think yeah. th- like i mean this election and if we look at middle america like their value is they want to be recognized they want to be successful They want to be feel part of a larger conversation. And Mm -hmm. I think their vote, like their understanding is like, I want this for me and my family, which isn't different than what we want for people of color, like progressives want for us and our families. Mm -hmm. Like it's not different. Mm -hmm. It's just that. The message that they're getting about how they get that is very different than the message that we're getting about how we get that. You Mm -hmm. know, like, so we're on this progressive side and they're like, oh, we want the same things. But we see that you're getting it and we're not. And the media is playing a huge role in creating that understanding for them. So, you know, like there's that, you know.
0: It seems seems to me like if we we talk specifically about the U.S. in this election and the difference in values and whatever or the commonality in values like going back to sapiens and basically like I think the common thing, if you're going to find one common thing about what everybody wants is people want a warm place to sleep, mm-hmm. people want to eat, they want to fuck, whoever the fuck they want to, Yeah. whether it's male, female, whatever, mm-hmm. and they want to be able to raise their family in a safe way. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's basically it. That's yeah. like an organism. Like You, you want to be able to live and reproduce and kind of be comfortable doing it. Right. And so I think maybe, you know, one of the things that's been talked about with regards to the failure of the left with regards to this election has been that um, we actually started ignoring those basic issues for a large majority of pe- people, especially those in the Midwest or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, white working class. We went away and be, and I would say those are socioeconomic, very basic socioeconomic issues. Mm-hmm. We, we started progressing more into a party that was championing social issues like. And I know they're tied in mm-hmm, many ways. Yeah. But, you know, basically people were like, Oh, you guys just care about whether transgender people can use the bathroom or not. I just like, what about my rent?
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know? What about my rent? What about having a job? What about yeah. having a good education for my children? Right. And that wasn't part of the rhetoric. But I think a lot of it is really controlled by media and how mass media basically is laying out. Like the presentation of yeah, but, but like the social movement. I, I
0: would agree, but I also think like if you went and saw like, you know, Hillary speak or whatever, like she wasn't you know dynamic about those issues mm-hmm. in any way, yeah. like the way Bernie was, mm-hmm. and maybe that's you know that's a whole other thing with regards to Bernie and getting effed over. But um, but I think there was kind of a lack of focus on some of these things that matter.
1: Yeah, for a vast majority of of Americans of every color and socioeconomic status completely completely and I mean I think part of it is like also are the progressive lefts or I mean I wouldn't necessarily consider Hillary Clinton left but you know like you know like there is a certain elitism about Mm -hmm. you know being at the position where she was Mm -hmm. and at the time you know in 2016 that like Okay, it's time to elect a woman. Okay, that's fine. Like I agree, but we need to talk about substantial issues or you know, right. significant issues for for right. folks. You know?
0: Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think a lot of things got lost there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Unfortunately. I
1: mean, it's a great learning opportunity, and these next four years are going to be a battle. But it's also an op- a, like a ripe opportunity to go back. I mean, I think it was a slap in the face, like a wake up call, like to the left, like look, you're leaving people behind. Yeah. You know, like and I think within we need to, you know, like really dive deep into what we believe and what we're doing to to be more inclusive and to talk about people's issues and to talk to them directly. We can't like throw anybody's, you know, anybody out and because we we are all inextricably linked no matter what. And I mean, back to the question about organizing is like having that understanding is I think like the first part. But my process of becoming an organizer—I um, mean, I think I always was an organizer. Shit, I'm like the oldest daughter in a Mexican family, man. I gotta figure out how to feed the kids and like, you know, get them to do homework. So I was always organizing something, you know. But um, but really, after college, I met um, uh, an elder organizer. Her name is Mary Gonzalez, um, and got connected to the Gamaliel Foundation, which is actually the the um, institute that that trained Barack Obama, and he actually worked for the, the Gamaliel yeah. Foundation when he was in Chicago, in the south side of Chicago. Interesting. Yeah, so I actually met, like, and was trained by many of his mentors.
0: Wow. Uh-huh.
1: Um, and um, really, I mean, it starts out with, number one, connecting to your gut, connecting to, like, what it is, like, what is your anger, and how do you use it in a way that's constructive, and that moves you forward, right? So like, I think the process for me, um, you know, like I'm able to talk about like my history and laugh about it and things like that, but for a long time, it was a very painful experience to recognize like, I, I, I don't doubt that my parents have ever loved me, like they have loved each one of us, you know, but like certain, you know, cultural mores like, yeah. that they have impacted how I saw myself and my own value. And actually understanding that and understanding that I was angry about certain situations really made me connect to how I can move away from the anger. Well, not move away, but, like, transform the anger. Channel from it. Yeah. yeah, channel it in a very productive way
0: yeah.
1: in the world. So one thing that I discovered in that process was I'm really pissed off about having a, you know, An insignificant voice in my family when I was growing up because my brothers had all these great opportunities to like hang out with friends and go wherever they wanted to do like spend the night at their friend's house I mean like it's really insignificant now (laughs) when I say it but I was really pissed off about it you know I was in charge of changing diapers and you know couldn't go beyond the yard you know like kind of thing yeah and and actually understanding that for some folks that's the reality in their everyday lives in our communities like there's people who live in unsafe spaces who live um unsafe communities where there's just a lack of opportunity a lack of money a lack you know and don't have the voice to make their needs important for people who can actually address them with them yeah so um so i actually that was like the first step in in becoming an organizer is recognizing that and then the The rest really um, was like it doesn't it's not like mundane like tactics because it's really every day is different. But you just learn like certain things like, you know, you talk to people on a one on one. Yeah. <laughs> and in that conversation, what you try to do is you get to understand what are their interests? Um, what do they care about? What are they angry about? Like and are they angry enough and passionate enough about who they are and what they want to like take an action and then you right. create the opportunity for them to take an action and grow and strengthen their like understanding of themselves and their place in the world because a lot of times in communities of color and in working class communities we feel really oppressed but we keep that like within the four door, the four walls of our church or the four walls of our home we yeah. don't talk about these there's issues. shame yeah exactly there's a lot
0: of shame that comes from i think you know being poor mm-hmm. uh, or you know being uh controlled in some way like you're talking about like that's a big deal when you're a kid mm-hmm. when you feel like even within your own fucking family there's <laughs> there's yeah. this like hardcore favoritism and 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 the opportunity is different yeah. um and yeah it makes sense that definitely getting beyond the shame and learning to effectively kind of like uh, love yourself is like the very first step that's yeah. needed to to be able to help others.
1: Yeah, and I think the, the big challenge for people, particularly in organizing, is to like create a public persona to what you believe. Because hmm. a lot of times, like I said, you, you don't talk to people about the shame that you have. Yeah, You don't, like you don't talk about the issues you have. You don't talk about Shit, I can't afford my rent this month. Like, and I'm going to just figure it out by myself. Yeah. When in reality, there's thousands and hundreds of thousands of families with the same, same issue issues. Yeah. Because there is a system that's creating that for you. And if we continue to just personalize it, personalize it, and not talk about it in public, then like we're really not going to be able to change it at a systematic level. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. That's a really crazy way to put it. I mean that, like, there's so much energy to be channeled, but because of shame and, and, yeah, a lot of it is just shame. Like, you know, it's...
1: And fear. Shame and fear.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those are really... Those can be really destructive forces when they're not channeled properly.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and actually, like, looking at the way people voted, right? looking back at this election, is like, I think shame and fear were a huge part of the messaging from the right, like fear the other, fear that there is not enough for you. That's why you're in the situation that you're in, yeah. you know, like, you know, so like it kind of played in, it well, it did it totally played into people's fears in a way that moved them to say you know what they're right like there isn't enough for them to succeed and for me to succeed that's why I'm so poor they're succeeding more than I am I need to go with this guy because he's promising to bring back my job to give me a good salary to like when in reality like it's decision makers like our future president that are like you know maybe not him but like previous presidents like we're profiting from decisions being made or like companies were profiting from decisions being made because they use their money and influence to change laws that then created this reality for this group of people.
0: Yeah. You yeah. know? So going, let's jump into specifics about what you're working on now, because mm-hmm. it sounds like, I mean, that's what you're doing is like working person to person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, So you said you're working on two campaigns, or is it one?
1: One. Right now, one. Um, And it's actually part of a national campaign to unionize security officers. Hmm. Um, Previous to this, I was doing work with already organized uh, janitorial um, uh, workers uh, that work in property services. So like, you know, those big buildings like in downtown LA, Mm -hmm. downtown San Francisco, Oakland, those huge, like, commercial real estate buildings. Yeah. There's folks who clean them. Right. Clean them at night and they already have a union. So through that union they have health insurance, they have protections on the job. Um, you know, like but
0: they might work for different
1: companies different
0: janitorial companies that Mm -hmm. are contracted by the building or the exactly okay
1: yeah so those people work side by side with security officers right they're the ones who give them the keys who open you know doors for them things like that so now we're looking at um we're actually in the process of organizing security officers we already have them organized in la in sacramento san francisco and oakland um, so right now we're on the Silicon Valley campaign mm-hmm. um, and here is a little bit different than those other markets that I mentioned because it's very suburban it's very spread out it's between San Jose and South San Francisco um, and there there's more than 5,000 of them hmm. um, that are protecting these buildings like these tech
0: tech companies tech yeah. companies yeah
1: um, and and some of them are making good money, you know, like someone who works at, you know, somewhere like Facebook is making near $20 starting, you know, and you're mm-hmm. 19 years old and you're a college student and it's yeah. like, whoa, 20, 20 bucks, like, yeah. heck yeah. Um, but there's also people who are, um, you know, like securing smaller um, buildings that mm-hmm. are making 10 50 an hour and mm-hmm. are trying to raise a family on that, you know, so we have a very like diverse group of security officers here and companies um, that treat them a certain way or that don't guarantee opportunities for growth or can fire you on the spot for wearing white socks instead of black. You know, Hmm. something as insignificant as that. Hmm. Um, So really, um, you know, we're, we're in the process right near the tail end of of reaching majority so that they begin negotiating their contract
0: what does that mean exactly like very specifically reaching majority like what is and and how who like sets these rules Mm -hmm. Um.
1: well we um, we negotiate at the national level with the top um, security companies so um, it's uh, people like Ally Barton Universal Protection Services G4S um, uh, Securitas Mm -hmm. Uh, those are the large companies um, and we negotiated. We said, hey, we're going to start organizing these workers. Like, we want to reach a neutrality agreement. And we have at the national level. So the neutrality agreement um, creates the opportunity for us then to go into different markets based on, like, our negotiation with, the, with those companies to organize the majority of workers. If the majority of the workers in, in the market that we're organizing say, yes, we want a union, then we build the union um, with them. Um, we train them on how to organize themselves in their work sites, and then also some of them emerge as leaders who then help organize the rest of the work sites or talk to other leaders. So here in the Silicon Valley market, we've been on this campaign working. Um, number one, you know, we start out educating mem- like potential members, mm-hmm. um, training them, and then eventually when we're at the point where we're like, okay, we can do this, we begin what's called a card check process. So we collect signatures of security officers or of workers Mm -hmm. to sign on to support the union. (laughs) Once we um, get a majority of them from a certain company, we go to what's called the AAA, the Board of Arbitration, and they, along with the company and ourselves, basically say, we've got majority, here are the signatures of majority. They say, this is the final list of workers, and we basically cross-check that we have a majority. That we organized a majority. Mm-hmm. The company actually never sees the workers' signature. They don't know who, who signed, who didn't. Yeah. Um, as long as we reach fifty percent plus one hmm. workers. So we here in Silicon Valley, there's five organiz- five uh, companies that we've organized. Um, we've got majority on the first four. We're down to the last one, and we're just a few signatures from um, from reaching majority there. Hmm. Um, so. We're literally, we've already got the low hanging fruit of the workers. Now we're really working on the tough nuts to crack who yeah. don't necessarily, sometimes they don't understand what the union is or yeah. they've been um, told at work, you know, like the company's going to lose the contract and you love working at Facebook. And if we lose the contract, you lose your job.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, they're, they've been giving them those kinds of messages, yeah. but um, we're reaching them both at the work sites, but really where we get more uh, where we move forward more is at their doors because nobody's there. They're not afraid. Nobody's going to know that they signed. Like all yeah. of that is confidential. Yeah. The union is the only one that knows, and then the the board of arbitration.
0: I see. Yeah. So it's Facebook. What are the other?
1: Facebook, Google, Intuit, Genentech, um, uh, Agilent Technologies. Mm-hmm. It's all of those buildings actually between Morgan Hill pretty much mm-hmm. all the way up to South San Francisco, Daly City. I see. Um, and, um, you know, so it's near 5000 workers. Um, uh-huh. You know, we think about these bigger ones like like Facebook, because they have so many more security officers there, like
0: mm-hmm. Facebook
1: is a huge campus. They have near 400 security officers.
0: Oh, shit. Yeah. Wow. Like
1: you and and if you've ever been there, you probably didn't notice it. Like it's the same like with the janitorial stuff is like they're there. You just don't notice them because, yeah you know like
0: yeah i'm trying to think i've been to facebook no i've seen a few of them around mm-hmm. yeah, but, they, yeah 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 they're
1: totally stealth they all yeah. wear black they maybe huh. open the door for you say hello or yeah. make sure you check out the bike right you know like that kind of stuff <laughs> yeah um but really like their first responders if there's any kind of emergency there yeah. um, on site um you know like if there's an active shooter they're the first ones you know to like you know confront them, you know like yeah. it's things like that yeah that we think about there's um, a ton of people and in this particular industry it's a lot of people of color it's mm. a, a you know like um, and a large majority of those are actually african-american so and male so yeah. um, as we think about you know like creating opportunities especially with this whole black lives matter movement we think about it like this is I mean at least from my perspective is an opportunity to really create um, opportunities for for these folks to really succeed in a job that's um, protected, that gives them the benefits that they need to survive in one of the most expensive places to live mm. in the country. Yeah. Um, you know things like that, um, and protects them in a job that is you know somewhat dangerous.
0: Yeah. What's the general sentiment amongst younger people? Because it's probably like you were saying, a lot of these guys are young. Like, I've seen them on these campuses. They're mm-hmm. young dudes. But, I mean, what do people think about when they hear union, generally speaking, now? Is there kind of a...
1: You know, I, it, it differs. And I think it's a lot having to do with the age group. Like, for younger workers, they're like, I don't need it. It's fine, and I'm only going to be here for a little while. Um, yeah. They told us that five years ago when they were 19 and now they're 24 and they're, 24 still, before, and they're yeah. still there. Yeah. You know like <laughs> uh, you know so it's yeah. um you know that's something that we always have to overcome is like thinking long term about your career when yeah. you're 19 and you live with your parents and they you have a car and you know like you're on
0: top of the world yeah. you can to yeah. pay rent. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So mm-hmm. you know like we're overcoming that but I think what also what we're overcoming is is um people's lack of understanding of what a union really is. Yeah. You know like um a lot of people you know so what is a union for uh, our listeners like because
0: we have a lot of young listeners Mm -hmm. who might be in jobs like this or who might be confronted with this thing like how would you break down like
1: a union is a group i mean it's basically a group effort to of of workers working together to negotiate together um against the company and I don't mean against it, so that the company like dies or like doesn't make the profit. No, it is um, negotiating for your interest to be a successful company, actually, so that you as a worker are successful and are respected and appreciated in different ways. So it's through pay, through health insurance benefits, through uh, protection of your job, um, things like that, and so that you you know when a worker is appreciated they do better work, and the company succeeds, Yeah. right? So it's actually a win-win situation. It is not to hurt the company in any way. Um, So it's basically a group of workers working together on um, clear interests that they have as workers to negotiate in a much more powerful way to get the benefits that they want and need.
0: Would you say that unions have generally or are generally more geared around trades that are that you might consider um what's the word um not entry level but like because I was thinking about this on my way over here and I was like okay what is what is the real power here of a union and and I was reminded of something that made me realize like okay this is the power but correct me if I'm Mm -hmm. wrong or whatever but um I used to work at the at a tech company and um we went through like, the company was going through like some sort of financial difficulties. And so they started saying, oh, we're gonna start making cuts, whatever. You know what the first thing they did? They cut the janitorial services. Uh (laughs) And here's a company, a multi billion dollar, or whatever, hundreds hundreds of millions of dollars um, that could easily have laid off one or two engineers and been okay or whatever. But they decided to take janitorial services from like five days a week to like two or three days a week or something mm-hmm. like that. So that's how they decided to cut costs. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, that is some fuck shit. Like, they took the person who's making $10 an hour. Like, they just saved like whatever, like peanuts. Yeah. But because that person has no power, like that's who the fuck they went after, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was like, well, you know, why would they do that? And it's because, well, they value like an engineer more and I've got air quotes here yeah. if you're only listening. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it seems to me that that's where the the benefit lies where, you know, you might be, and this is, I don't think, always the case, but it certainly would be the case in, in the tech world where, you know, certain value, certain uh, positions are extremely high value, extremely well-paid people, and they're not going to let you go. But if they're like, uh, like this person, they're, they're not going to argue with me. <laughs> Yeah.
1: Um, Well, I mean, in those particular cases, yes. I mean, like that is the first thing that they do. They cut out, you know, the maintainers that create the space for you as an engineer to be successful. Yeah. Right. So like, I mean, the last thing you want is to go into a bathroom and there's no (laughs) freaking toilet paper and there's like trash all over the place. Like really that they're creating a space for you to be successful. They're creating a space for um you know, like that company to thrive in a good and create a good place to work that's clean and healthy and spotless so that you don't worry about it, right? Um, There's that. But I mean, eventually if you're in so much trouble, you as an engineer who creates the, whether it's programs or systems or machines that like get then the profit for the owners of the company, Mm -hmm. like, eventually you'll they'll start cutting some of you off True. right True. but they keep the majority of the profit you don't I yeah. mean they pay you well but they make so much more than you sure right sure. so like it's a way to protect your work whether you're a janitor
0: mm-hmm. a
1: security officer or you're an engineer Sure. Like there is, um, like there's the machinist union, mm-hmm. like for all of those. It folks. seems there's a
0: lot in aerospace. Yes. Oh, incredibly yeah. so, incredibly yeah. so. Yeah.
1: Because I mean, like think about the kind of work that they do, like if you're designing and building these, these like huge rockets, they can pay you peanuts. Um, and then they make all the profit, they get all the recognition. And really what it is um, as a union is that you're able to negotiate, you know, like what you get for your effort, because yeah. you know like going back to like Marxist theory or socialist theory like we still own the means of production for these like owners and and boards of like these huge corporations to be profitable like yeah. without you as an engineer without you know me as a worker because I also have a union as an organizer hmm. like they wouldn't be able to do the work that they make so much money from yeah you know so like yeah. uh, and unions um you know, unions are actually the reason that we have an eight hour workday. Like it was the, the you know, like the whole labor movement in the early 1900s that got us work, work site protections that, um, you know, develop like these OSHA, like mm-hmm. the, the reason that we have mm-hmm. now have the occupational safety and hazard mm-hmm. administrations to mm-hmm. make sure that the workers are protected that we have that we get paid that like there's a certain age before you can work. I mean, there was children working in like mines and things like that. So the reason we have a work weekend, like a work week (laughs) as opposed to seven days a week of work is because of unions like, you know, so like as we see the deterioration of unions over the past 40, 50 years, we also see that divide like among socioeconomic Um, groups and also racial groups. So like on the Rust Belt, you know, like Ohio and Pennsylvania, there is a lot of poor white people that have lost their jobs because industry and coal mines have closed. Right. Like because we're moving away from that. Hmm. And instead of creating opportunities for them to be successful, they see that those jobs are either moving to Mexico because of NAFTA or to China because it's cheaper over there, you know, like so they see that they're being, you know, like they don't have opportunities here. They're shipping out those jobs, or they're giving them to immigrants who are willing to work for less money. And you know, like it really was, like it really has been connected to the decline in union labor.
0: Boot
1: right. hmm. this up one time. Yeah. We're on all time. yeah.
0: <laughs> so it it sounds to me like um, my perception of it, while partially true, is actually just informed by the luxury of not being, like, being higher on the totem pole, if you will. Um, but that totem pole drops very quickly mm-hmm. if the financial interests, <laughs> you know, yeah. are, are at stake for the owners, mm-hmm. um, or the shareholders, if you will. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. It it certainly seems like, um, There has been a decline of the power of the union, it Mm -hmm. seems like. Um, But I think, like most things, part of that probably is this people have gotten comfortable. People forget history. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And uh, don't realize how quickly this stuff could roll back.
1: Oh, yeah. If you're
0: not careful. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I mean, and that's actually why we see such a decline in places like Detroit you know detroit used to be a booming economy because of the car industry and eventually those jobs and those industries were moved out of the country but but let
0: me play devil's advocate and say like those workers were unionized how mm. did they allow that to happen
1: um well i think we weren't powerful enough and and we and and also we weren't power, powerful enough politically mm. so you know like in 19 what was it 1996 1997 Uh, President then Bill Clinton signed NAFTA the National the North American Free Trade Agreement that created um, you know tariff-free export importation of you know like different products so it was much cheaper for a company um, to move their production of cars to Mexico Mm -hmm. and then transport them because it's so close by train or by ship Um, and sell them, like produce them at a much cheaper rate sure. than um, producing them in Detroit, where the unions are strong, where they were getting, you know, healthcare benefits, all of that.
0: So were the unions actively fighting NAFTA back yes. then? Yeah. Yes, like, and, and, and yeah. yeah.
1: Yes, and now um, we've been fighting the TPP, the Trans-Pacific um, yeah. Partnership, because it would do the same thing, hmm. would do a similar thing. Yeah. So, I mean, unions. I mean aside from being like a group of workers are also a political force because a lot of like what impacts our workers um, is is happening in Washington DC at the state level as well about, you know, like trade, um, you know, different programs, um, you know, like the, the, I mean, economically, like looking at um, how you know, I mean, it's mostly that it's particularly around trade, mm-hmm. these trade deals that are being made um, that impact workers and don't take them into account. And we think it's a good deal. Right. Because it'll give us cheaper products. Right. A cheaper car. Yeah. You know, I could buy a Nissan for fifteen thousand and it was built in Mexico as opposed to if it was built here. We're paying 22 twenty three. Right. So it's cheaper. But. It means that hundreds of people are losing their jobs or thousands of people. And that's actually where we see such a difference around the Rust Belt, Ohio, um, Michigan, you know, which were traditionally Democratic states actually went for.
0: Yeah, I mean, it it makes sense if those were the promises made. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Very literal promises. I mean, whether they're a bunch of bullshit or not. It needs yeah. to be seen. I mean, it's fun. It's been interesting watching like what's been going down with Carrier, and mm-hmm. you. I'm sure you're all over that, reading that stuff with that guy getting in the news.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> our world is our our world right now and our reality in the U S is is very interesting. And you know, like I said, it's an opportunity. We can't be negative about like the reality that we're living i think we have to look at it as an opportunity um and and really take back like our understanding of what our interest is and then using it together to get what we really want which are like i mean like ultimately being having access to the american dream for everyone who is in the united states
0: well that's an interesting segue for what i was thinking right now is like what um what sort of global outlook do does your union have? Because I know it, part of the name is International Union, right? Mm-hmm. And and what sort of work is being done on a global level? Because, I mean, part of me like I'm like, okay, that really sucks. All the jobs went to China or Mexico or whatever, and and like these a few hundred thousand or whatever, how many people in the Midwest lost their jobs? But, you know, over the last twenty years, like we've also pulled pulled like millions of people out of abject poverty in rural China. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel that like, you know, I've done, I've been to factories in China as an engineer. I've worked there and I've met a lot of like, I've met like kids who are engineers, whatever people in their twenties who are like, yeah, my, you know, I grew up in a farm and my parents are like, literally like, you know, we didn't wear shoes and now we have these good jobs and I'm making an iPhone or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's like beautiful in some ways, you know? Yeah. And so how I guess like one of the challenging things is balancing like a global outlook with local interests
1: yes well I mean I think honestly as as an international union we do look at what's happening globally with workers Mm -hmm. I mean we do have exchange programs to train organizers in other parts of the world
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um, so that they're organizing workers there because the reason we can get a cheap iPhone which I don't think they're really that cheap but is because there's (laughs) someone who's making a lot less money in China making the iPhone that I get to pay You know, one hundred eighteen dollars a month for six months, you know, (laughs) like, um, you know, so we have to look at that. Like, they're they may be pulled out of abject poverty for our gain as a consumer to Mm -hmm. not pay as much. Mm
0: -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm.
1: But at the same time, there's a worker here who's now going into poverty because that job that they used to make iPhones at are now in China. So, like, how do we, I mean, it's a yeah. it's a difficult balance. So yeah. that's why we have to look at it at an at a global level, like what is happening in those countries that we can like invest time and effort and energy into having their workers organized so that they are also making a quality like, mm-hmm. you know,
0: a quality of life. Yeah, yeah. quality a little of little life. Wages. And then.
1: I mean one one thing that we've done in that i'm very clear on and like understand is like around the whole fight for 15 because sciu the international it has been the one really moving that forward the fight for 15 the fast food worker mm-hmm. organizing
0: um and that's literally fighting for a 15 minimum wage yeah, or something okay yeah
1: um we've won some battles politically they're not as strong as we want them to but we've won them um, we haven't been able to win the union for the fast-food workers. We have seen like that I mean like for instance the Walmart campaign, which was connected to that There's some Walmarts that are now working to get to the $15 um, an hour in a full-time um, You know 40 hours as opposed to like just below so that they don't have yeah. to provide health care benefits, healthcare benefits. Yeah. Um, but internationally um, We've worked in particular around the European Union hmm. uh, to organize those workers there um, and to use examples such as you see in the Netherlands and Sweden where where fast food workers are making $22, $23 an hour and can live their lives on this job. Because yeah. the, the way that jobs work now is like for a long time, one of the battles is like, well, McDonald's workers are teenagers, you know, after school. It, it, that's not the case anymore. It's like heads of households that may have lost a job you know, building mm-hmm. cars at the factory mm-hmm. now have to work for ten fifty an hour, if yeah. that, at yeah. a McDonald's, right? Yeah. So, like, the way that we're working and our workforce has changed, like, you know, makes it harder to survive on a job like that. And we're part of making sure that that's, that, that discussion is also happening at the international level so that, you know, it's, an, it's actually changing a whole industry. That's why when, when we talk about the security industry, we're not just looking at Silicon Valley or at just California, we're looking across the country. Yeah, We have um, security officers unionized in 16 um, different markets throughout the country. And our goal is to continue growing. So after we're done with the Silicon Valley campaign, which, you know, is very soon, we move on to San Diego, which is where the where I work Mm -hmm. um, to unionize them. And then we'll move to Orange County and then we'll move to other parts of the country. Mm. Um, So we've been doing groundwork in in those other markets uh, to get ready um, to really like ramp it up.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. The more you talk about this, the more I see the super critical or super importance of a service workers union uh, just because of the fact that you know manufacturing jobs and whatnot have have all gone and like a lot of the work a lot of the low wage uh, workforce has shifted to service yes they're just service jobs Mm -hmm. you can't offshore you know all these sorts of things like people have to go to a restaurant here and they need security here and they need janitorial services mm-hmm. uh, probably hospital workers Is hospital
1: that... workers yeah. nursing yeah. like um even doctors and yeah all of that
0: yeah certainly for doctors too it could be it's so much more difficult to to be in private practice so <laughs> i would imagine that a lot of them are working at places like kaiser or whatever exactly. um mm-hmm. so it's important for them to organized interesting yeah. how, how big is the SEIU like how many uh, well workers? just in,
1: just in like our local um, USWW United Service Workers West which is California is 40,000 workers um, mm-hmm. but internationally I mean it's like over 2 million uh, workers. I mean, which is actually it may sound like a lot, mm-hmm. but I mean like unions and not just our union are are about 7 or 8% of workers in in the country.
0: Interesting. Um,
1: you know, so like with the decline of workers which was like at 35-40%, you know, 50 years ago, has declined so much and at that and So
0: 50 years ago there were how many people in the union? About
1: a 40 to 50% were
0: in the unions. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow interesting.
1: Yeah, so as you see the decline of union membership, you also see the decline of the middle class. Right? Because really it's the it's the battle that we have in the US is a decline of the middle class, like the middle class is shrinking. The top, you know, 2% top 1%, you know, like has grown but it's still so small compared to the bottom. Yeah. So really like it's a constriction of the middle class. Yeah. Um. And and it's been you know parallel with the decline of unions. Yeah. Because people do not understand what unions are anymore. Um, and you know like they do see it as like for service workers or for low wage workers and yeah. things like that as opposed to for everyone to protect themselves and their job because ultimately workers are the means of production for these profiteers at the top one percent.
0: Yeah, it, you could go on and on. This is yeah. an interesting uh, thing. I mean, we, we didn't even get into, like, you know, the what do you call it? The There's a certain term for like new jobs where you're like an Uber driver or
1: oh, uh, oh the gig economy. The gig economy. Oh,
0: yeah. yeah, that's
1: a different story. And I mean, like, you know, and maybe in the future, once we're in the campaign in San Diego, like, one thing that we didn't talk about, cause we're in, talking about Silicon Valley or like we're in this part of the state is where I work in San Diego. We're a border town. So our, our members and our future, like security officer members commute from Tijuana. They live in Mexico and they commute every day to work in San Diego.
0: Really? Yeah. Hmm. You
1: know, like, and that's a reality on the border. Yeah. You grew up in Texas. Yeah. But North Texas. Yeah. North Texas. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Fort Worth. So yeah. We, but it's, it's similar to what's happening along like the yeah, Southern, yeah. you know, like, yeah. South Texas, McAllen El Paso. And yeah, yeah. 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 Like, you know, we, we don't often talk about that, but that's the reality in these border communities where huh. we're like binational. Yeah. Our, stu- our Our children are binational. They like, everyone lives in Mexico, spends the night, like yeah. the afternoon and the night in Mexico, but comes to school or to work in the U.S. Huh. on the border yeah there's
0: <laughs> yeah the the gig economy is weird i mean mm-hmm. it's it opens up such a big can of worms and and then i think the further uh automa- automation of, yeah, of vehicles, like, vehicles yeah. is going to be interesting um but yeah i think like certainly there has been not just a culture shift against not so much against unions but uh yeah lessening of importance culturally um, but also kind of uh, in many ways, I think people are like getting used to or they seem to think it's OK that it's it's about you. Yes. Right? Oh,
1: yeah. We stop thinking about each other. We only think about ourselves.
0: Yeah. In a way, like and I mean that not like not just like in a selfish way, but like in a kind of professional way, like mm-hmm. it's it's about the brand of me. And like, you know, I've I, you know. I, pull yourself up, do your shit, and things will be okay, and that sort of thing, and so there, you don't, you know, you forget the power of the group, Mm -hmm. but.
1: Oh, that gig economy, that'd be an interesting show. (laughs) Yeah, I have a nephew who, who has been doing, you know, like, Instacart, and Uber, and all of that, and he's like, I'm 27, and I have nothing to show for it, you know, like, because he thought, like, Oh well this is easy you know i don't have to pay taxes till the end of the year i you know i control my time i like to decide when i work and when i don't and then when it's the end of the month and he can barely scrape by it's like oh oh yeah now i get why
0: yeah yeah there's definitely power in in the group and and some organizing that i mean it not everybody is is cut out to run their own business and when you are part of the gig economy, you're basically a one-person business mm-hmm. and even like what with what we do here and like having to do taxes and having to do like your accounting It's a lot of fucking work. Oh, yeah, and and you can you can get it. You can get yourself into a lot of trouble.
1: You know? Oh, definitely definitely, I mean especially since um, You know thinking about young people right and I think this is where the gig economy has really capitalized is like this like I'm successful. I'm pulling myself up by my bootstraps. Like, I don't need my parents, and I don't need anybody else. Like, I'm going to be successful. Like, really, like, it's capitalized on that, but, like, young people haven't realized, like, how intricately connected we are to each other, and, like, their work will impact them long term, you know? So when you have to, when you you're young and you're healthy and you don't have health insurance and then you have to pay a whopping bill at the end of the year is like, ah, dang, you know, like.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Damn young children, millennials.
1: (laughs) Uh (laughs) That's a whole other show. Listen to your elders.
0: (laughs) Um, If somebody was gonna, like, if somebody wanted to learn about like the history of unions or something like that, do you know of any books or anything or is there any, are there any Um, sources?
1: You know, I don't have any off the top of my head, but I actually would think like look up like the Service Employees International Union, SCIU.org. You can look at the history of the AFL-CIO, the United Farm Workers. We all organize workers, um, Mm -hmm. just different industries. And you know, you can find out about that and you can actually look at books like, you know, like I don't know the titles off the top of my head. But, you know, that look and have done research on the decline of the middle class and the decline of union um, mm-hmm. labor um, institutions uh, because of things like NAFTA, things like that. I don't know yeah. any off the top of my head, but
0: we'll look them up. We'll yeah. put them in the notes. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel about your work in, in the coming year? Are you hopeful? Or are you? Yeah.
1: Um, I'm (laughs) you know I'm hopeful that I'm hopeful because every day I get to meet people in my work that that are working really hard for their families and and are willing to risk um, you know themselves and in order to like risk for their entire family and gain You know so like I'm hopeful in that way I'm hopeful I'm hopeful because of California I think California we've done an amazing job of organizing ourselves and really like being political politically powerful um and I'm and that really gives me hope that we can impact the larger the larger country to to really you know Take action for what they care about. So yeah. I am. I'm hopeful, um, and I'm also hopeful that this, you know, at the national level, this the election of, of Donald Trumpetas, as we call him, <laughs> um, creates like a wake up call for for communities, and I mean community of every single color of every single um, socioeconomic class. That like we have to act on what we really care about to protect ourselves and our communities.
0: You have a lot of work ahead of you.
1: Yes, yes we do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We do, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much for stopping by, Betty. Of course. I hope uh, folks have learned something about the unions and and yeah, check out the site. You said it was, what was the?
1: seiu dot O-R-G.
0: Yeah, check that out to read more about what, what uh, Betty is doing. Yeah. And um, if you know somebody within these industries, definitely I would say send them that way. Yes. And um, nothing to be afraid of. <laughs>
1: nope, nope. We so much more to gain.
0: Yeah, yeah. Much more to gain. All right, thank you everybody for tuning in this week. <laughs> Thank you, Betty. Of course. And uh, we will see everybody next week.
1: Yeah, we'll see you soon.
0: All right, podcast number 10 is over. Thank you very much for joining us, watching all the way through. Remember to leave a five-star review and some comments on iTunes or Stitcher. Remember to share with your friends. And if you like what we're doing and want to support us here in our studio, check out patreon.com forward slash this Thank you very much, everyone. See you next week.